the old pilot's plain tales, when history repeats itself. In the tale, The Applegate Memorandum, I describe the difficult berth that McDonnell Douglas had with the DC-10 when its safety record was permanently marred by a cargo door design flaw that plagued its introduction. Sadly, this wasn't the only issue that was going to discredit the aircraft in the eye of its passengers, and they would ultimately condemn the world's first three-engined widebody as a dangerous failure. Although the aircraft's problems with its cargo doors could be firmly laid at the feet of McDonnell Douglas, the next disaster that the aircraft would have to cope with was not of the manufacturer's making, but of some operators who took it upon themselves to shorten engineering procedures. Five years had passed since the cargo door of Turkish Airlines Flight 98 blew out, which ultimately resulted in the loss of everyone on board. 346 perished, the deadliest air crash in history at the time. Then, on the 25th of May 1979, a DC-10-10 of American Airlines Flight 191 departed Chicago O'Hare's International Airport bound for Los Angeles. Robert Graham, the supervisor of maintenance for American Airlines, was watching the massive aircraft depart, and he recalled, As the aircraft got closer, I noticed what appeared to be vapor or smoke of some type coming from the leading edge of the wing and the number one engine pylon. I noticed that the number one engine was bouncing up and down quite a bit, and just about the time the aircraft got opposite my position and started rotation, the engine came off went up over the top of the wing and rolled back down onto the runway. Before going over the wing, the engine went forward and up just as if it had lift and was actually climbing. It didn't strike the top of the wing on its way, rather it followed the clear path of the airflow of the wing up and over the top of it, then down below the tail. The aircraft continued a fairly normal climb until it started a turn to the left, and at that point I thought he was going to come back to the airport. In the captain's seat of November 110 Alpha Alpha that day was a very experienced pilot who had been flying the DC-10s since their introduction eight years earlier. He had over 22,000 hours and was qualified on 17 other aircraft including the dc 6 7 and the Boeing 727. His first officer and flight engineer were also seasoned veterans. To them, the takeoff had appeared normal until they heard a thumping noise and alerted to a problem, the first officer exclaimed, Damn! But that was the limit of the cockpit voice recorders, the CVR's data, as it then ceased to function when its power failed. It had been a good weather day and the crew weren't anticipating any difficulties and the first officer's exclamation came just after the captain called rotate, indicating that the first officer was the pilot performing the takeoff. However, just prior to that, white smoke or vapour had been seen coming from the area around the number one engine, the engine on the left-hand wing. 
As the nose lifted during a rotation, the entire number one engine and pylon assembly came off the aircraft and flipped over the wing, falling onto the runway. Coincident with this, power to the CVR and Digital Flight Data Recordings, DFDR, from the left inboard aileron, left inboard elevator, lower rudder, and number two and four left wing leading edge slats ceased. All other parameters continued to be recorded. Power for the voice recorder and those DFDR inputs all came from the aircraft's number one AC generator bus, fed from the number one engine. The aircraft became airborne about 6,000 feet down the runway, but its flight would only last 31 seconds. It lifted off at six knots above the V2 safety speed, the speed at which the aircraft may safely climb with one engine inoperative during the takeoff phase. With the left wing slightly down, which an application of right aileron and right rudder corrected. The big machine continued a steady 14 degrees nose up climb at just over 1,000 feet per minute with the speed reaching 172 knots. At this stage, all looked good. Some other electrical systems had ceased to function, notably the captain's instruments, his stall warning stick shaker, and the leading edge slat disagree warning. In addition to the number one electrical buzz failure, which could have been recovered had there been time to run an appropriate emergency drill, several other systems relating to the number one engine's disappearance were affected. The number one hydraulic pump, powered by the missing engine, failed, but the system continued to operate through a backup pump driven by the number three system. However, as the engine somersaulted over the wing, it had damaged the leading edge, severing hydraulic fluid lines that powered the leading edge slats on the left wing and crucially locked them in place. Unbeknown to the crew, since the slat disagree warning was now inoperative, under the effect of the air loads impinging on them, the outboard wing slats on the left side began to retract. At the same time, the first officer was correctly following his company procedure, a procedure that would subsequently change, which stated that, following an engine failure, he should climb out at V2 speed until reaching 800 feet above field level or obstacle clearance altitude, whichever was higher, then lower the nose and accelerate. Indeed, his flight director was programmed to demand a pitch attitude that would achieve the V2 speed. Therefore, quite correctly, he held an attitude that allowed the aircraft to decelerate at about one knot a second, from 172 knots to the target V2 speed of 153 knots. As the aircraft's speed reduced, Unbeknown to the crew, with the left wing outboard slats retracting, the stalling speed of that wing was increasing to an estimated 159 knots. The stage was now set for a disaster.
as the DC-10 reached 350 feet and 159 knots without the stall warning that the captain's stick shaker would have offered, the left wing reached and then passed its critical angle of attack and started to lose lift. The aircraft began to roll and then turn left despite increasing attempts to counter the manoeuvre through the use of right rudder and aileron. As the roll increased, the nose began to drop from its initial position of 14 degrees nose up until when the aircraft was partially inverted at 112 degrees of bank, flight 191 reached an attitude of 21 degrees nose down. As the crew fought to maintain control of their doomed aircraft, it is possible that their 268 passengers and cabin crew shared their horrifying view of their last few seconds. American Airlines had equipped their cockpits with a closed-circuit television camera, which, via screens in the cabin, gave a live view of the flight deck over the captain's shoulder. When the aircraft hit the ground, the impact was horrendous. Large sections of aircraft debris were hurled by the force of the impact into an adjacent trailer park, destroying five trailers and several cars. The DC-10 also hit an old aircraft hangar at the edge of the airport at the former site of Ravenswood Airport, which was used for storage. The aircraft was destroyed by the impact force and the ignition of 21,000 gallons 79,000 litres of aviation fuel that was stored nearby. No sizeable components other than the engines and tail section remained. Everyone aboard the airliner plus two workers on the ground perished, leading to a death toll of 273, the deadliest aviation accident to have ever occurred on American soil. Following the previous DC-10 mishaps, this crash received widespread media coverage, but also because of a dramatic photograph taken moments before the impact that was published on newspaper front pages. There was little doubt as to the main cause of the accident and much speculation as to what caused the engine to separate from the wing. However, the loss of an engine should have been a survivable event, since all airliners were certified to fly safely following a critical engine failure, if not perhaps the complete separation of the engine. The NTSB investigation followed two paths, one to establish why the engine pylon became detached and then why the crew subsequently lost control. While the investigation was going on, two weeks following the crash and whilst under intense public pressure, the head of the FAA was called to testify at a House hearing. 
before the full findings were published, he then took the drastic, unprecedented and damning action of suspending the design certificate of the DC-10 indefinitely, thereby grounding all 138 of the aircraft flown by the nation's airlines. McDonnell Douglas called this an extreme and unwarranted act. Following the FAA's lead, other countries followed suit and around the world, DC-10 sat idle on the ground. Soon after, the NTSB established that the engine detached because of the failure of the pylon attachment fittings. When the fittings failed, the thrust of the engine forced it forward, pivoting around the front attachment point up and over the wing, until that attachment also failed. It became obvious that the bolts within the pylon fittings had fatigued and failed because of damage inflicted on them before the accident. Further investigation revealed that this damage had nothing to do with McDonnell Douglas's manufacturing techniques or design criteria but was due to the airline's own modified maintenance procedures. McDonnell Douglas stipulated that in order to remove an engine and pylon for inspection and repair, firstly, the engine should be dropped from the pylon and then the pylon could be removed. However, American, Continental and United Airlines had all developed a faster and cheaper way of completing this procedure by removing the engine and pylon as a single unit. The manufacturers, field service representatives working with the airlines advised that they would not encourage this procedure due to the element of risk. However... They did not have the authority to either approve nor disapprove the maintenance procedures of its customers. In the case of November 110 Alpha Alpha, which had undergone this procedure earlier in the year, the American Airlines mechanics had some difficulty with their approach to the engine removal. They elected to support the vast engine with a large forklift truck, whilst the pylon was disconnected. The positioning of the forklift was crucial, and in this case they made a little error which allowed the engine to rock slightly, and then, halfway through the job, there was a shift change. Whilst this was occurring, the forklift had been turned off, and the weight of the engine forced the forks down as hydraulic pressure bled away. This resulted in undetected damage to the attachment points, which, although insufficient to cause an immediate failure, led to fatigue cracking, which worsened over the next eight weeks until they finally gave out. The findings concluded that the loss of the number one engine was due to improper maintenance procedures conducted by the airline. The left-wing stall was caused by uncommanded retraction of the left-wing outer leading-edge slats, compounded by the loss of the slat disagree warning and the stall warning. Out of interest, McDonnell Douglas offered stall warning stick shaker systems for both pilots, 
but at an additional cost which American Airlines had declined. This accident opened a proverbial can of worms that shook the industry and the regulators. The FAA convened a safety panel to evaluate the design of the DC-10. The results were perhaps not quite what they expected, as the panel highlighted critical deficiencies in the way the government certifies the safety of American-built airliners. Focusing on a shortage of FAA expertise during the certification process and a corresponding over-reliance on McDonnell Douglas to ensure that the design was safe. Both manufacturers and airlines were blamed for focusing on the letter of the law and not creating a safety culture within their organisation. Regulations were issued to ensure that stick shakers would be provided to both pilots and that vital devices such as slats had mechanical locks. Forty years later, when the issue of the MCAS system in the Boeing 737 MAX, which led to the disastrous crashes of two aircraft and an enormous loss of life, were examined, parallels were drawn between the situation in 1979 and 2019. The DC-10 loss had brought to light the need for system redundancy, crew warning systems, rigorous certification, a lack of oversight and expertise in an under-resourced regulator. The very same problems that became a crucial part of the 737 MAX debate. There were several wiring parallels concerning the introduction of both aircraft. The timescale for the production of both the DC-10 and the MAX were planned to get the jump on competitors, so delays were unacceptable, and when concerns were raised, safety took a back seat to exigence. Design features that might have met the letter of the law fell short of best practice. In the 1980 committee report on the FAA airworthiness certification procedures led by a former NASA administrator is found the comment of greater concern, however, is the identification of what appears to be a trend towards placing more and more reliance on the manufacturer in the course of type certification. Towards the end of the certification procedure, for instance, the designees submit large amounts of reports and calculations to their FAA counterparts for approval. While the requirement to make such submissions has value in assuring airworthiness, in most cases the FAA staff performs only a cursory review. Four decades later, the Joint Authorities Technical Review would issue a remarkably similar final report on the 737 MAX MCAS system. They highlighted signs of undue pressure on the Boeing staff responsible for regulatory approval and which it said may be attributed to conflicting priorities and an environment that does not support FAA requirements. These regulatory personnel included engineers with limited experience and knowledge of key technical aspects of the 737 MAX program. 
Overall, they concluded that this resulted in an inability of the FAA to provide an independent assessment. Both the 737 MAX and the DC-10 were considered to be in full compliance with federal regulations, but neither manufacturers built as safe an aircraft as they could have. It would appear that 40 years is too long for corporate memories to hold the concepts of a truly safe culture. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find out all about that at AirlinePilotGuy.com. Plane Tales is also a standalone podcast, and if you're listening to this, you've already found it. So we'd be very grateful if you would leave us a review, perhaps on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Many thanks, and many thanks for listening.